This program features interviews with respected healthcare industry experts on current topics of substantial national importance. Your host for the program is David Intricasso, a DC-based healthcare policy analyst and researcher. We invite you to comment on the program by visiting thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Now, here's David. Welcome to the Healthcare Policy Podcast. Again, I'm the host, David Intracasso. During this podcast, my 150th, we'll discuss CMS's current Medicare Church Savings Program, or the Accountable Care Organization Proposed Rule. With me to discuss the proposed is Tim Groninger, Senior Vice President of Development and Strategy at Caravan Health. Tim, welcome to the program. Thank you, David. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, While Mr. Groninger's more complete bio is posted on the podcast website, here I'll just note, just previous to Caravan, Tim served as Chief of Staff and Director of Delivery System Reform at CMS, and previous to that, he was Senior Advisor for Healthcare Policy at the White House Domestic Policy Council under President Obama. So Tim is far more than qualified to discuss this subject. So on background, we'll begin by my noting, in mid-August, CMS published the agency's latest proposed MSSP rule subtitled Pathway to Success. Comments are due October 16th. Among numerous other program changes discussed over the 165 Federal Register pages, CMS is moreover proposing to reduce the number of years an ACO can participate at no financial risk from six to two years. Reducing the years of no-risk agreements, which defines how the vast majority of ACO providers currently participate, is unsurprising since the Secretary of Health and Human Services, Alex Azar, earlier this year termed ACO results from the first four years of the program, quote-unquote, underwhelming and lackluster. Since CMS believes no-risk ACO arrangements increase, not decrease Medicare spending. To quote the agency, the transition to performance-based risk remains a pressing concern. With me to discuss the proposed rule again and stakeholders' reactions to it is again Tim Groninger. With that as some context or background, let me begin by asking if you could just briefly describe or explain your work at Caravan Health. Sure, happy to. So uh, at Caravan, I work with physicians and hospitals to create and manage value-based performance uh, improvement programs and uh, really to create business models that will support success in ACOs uh, as well as other performance-based incentive programs. And so that means everything from helping them, uh, helping a a health system navigate the regulatory requirements for applying to, uh, more importantly and interestingly, helping them put in place uh, care management programs, uh, the data infrastructure, the uh, governance and management programs that will actually enable them to improve the care that their patients receive and reduce total cost of care over time. So thank you. Just as a bottom line, how many ACO programs are you currently involved with at Caravan? So we are, in, <laughs> excuse me, in 2018 uh, working with 38 ACOs, uh, that include about 250 health systems caring for uh, just over a million Medicare patients nationwide. Great. So that's about a tenth. The uh, ACO program is about 10.5 million Medicare beneficiaries. Let's, let me go to, also on background, I mentioned um, in the intro that CMS is arguing or believes 
that these track one or no risk ACOs actually are costing uh, the Medicare program money. This is based on their interpretation of performance against their benchmark. There's a lot of debate on this. Some say uh, the program is losing money. Some say it's actually the opposite. So there's a wide range of opinion on this. But what's your take on the success of the program to date? Yeah, I, there is a lot of discussion in the, in the proposed rule about this. I think that there's not a lot of debate among researcher, health services researchers and people who uh, follow this closely from a program evaluation perspective. Uh, this is uh, among Medicare uh, we'll call them experiments, although this is really quite a lot larger than a pilot program at this point. But uh, this is the uh, program that is clearly demonstrating savings to the program, uh, really no matter how you look at it at this point. Uh, but using before 2017, you had to use uh, evaluation methods and uh, you had to uh, you had to look at comparison groups. And you could see um, that there were pretty pretty clear improvements in performance in areas that had more ACOs than not, and that ACOs that were in the program for longer uh, reduced costs more in total. Uh, the, the program data itself, that is if you just look at the benchmark data, also in 2017 demonstrated uh, pretty decent uh, savings to the Medicare program. Um, uh, again, a lot depends on how you measure it, but it, it's pretty clear that uh, savings of one to two percentage points against benchmarks uh, per year uh, are being achieved by ACOs overall, and uh, it, that it gets larger when you include other spillover effects like on the Medicare Advantage program. Um, I also don't want to miss that ACOs, uh, that nobody is disputing that ACOs have improved uh, the quality of care received from Medicare beneficiaries. Uh, there have been uh, very consistent and well-documented uh, from CMS and elsewhere increases in the metrics that are used to judge quality in the program, uh, and those are primarily metrics about preventive care, about getting access to uh, primary care when you need it, uh, as well as uh, indicators around uh, measures that are susceptible to uh, to preventive care, such as um, control of uh, control of blood sugar for diabetic patients and, and other measures like that. Okay, thank you. Um, relative to your uh, noting uh, academic researchers, um, that is the case. The argument is that if you look at performance relative to benchmarks, academics have argued that benchmarks are not quote-unquote valid counterfactuals, and it looks like MedPAC has even turned the corner on that and agreeing with that observation. I will note um, that the researchers have done probably most of the work on this subject are those at Harvard. Uh, J. Michael McWilliams is the lead there. He has a letter to CMS and comment on the proposed dated September 18th. So I'll note that uh, it's quite enlightening, uh, 20 plus pages, and he cites a good deal of their research over the last uh, six years. I do have a number of questions about aspects of what's in the proposed, um, the high and low revenue issue, the risk adjustment issue, um, their proposed changes to the regional blend. Uh, you're well aware of all these, but let me uh, start by asking you more openly or in a more open-ended manner, what do you think are uh, the primary issues uh, in the proposed and how do you think they should be addressed? So your choice, what you think is most important. 
Yeah, before we go super technical and wonky, I think I want to uh, take a more global approach uh, and, and zoom out a little bit as you did at the start. So um, there's a lot to like in the rule, and it's mostly in the, the realm of the technical and uh, wonky that we're about to get into. Uh, I think that it's appropriate that CMS be asking ACOs to transition to risk over time. Uh, and a number of our clients in suburban and, and urban areas were, were already planning to do that. Um, I think that it's good that CMS is looking at ways to provide some limited incentives for patients to stay in network for ACOs that will that will help uh, manage uh, to keep patients attached to their providers who are doing most of the primary care already. Um, but the, the, the global issue I see with the rule and really where the ACO comes from originally, you mentioned Bob Reichauer earlier when we were talking before uh, the program started recording. Um, Medicare has been trying to find ways to change fee-for-service payment for uh, for decades. And uh, problems in fee-for-service payments have been well-known and well-documented, uh, the problems being uh, if you get paid for doing more stuff to patients than you do more stuff to patients without regard to whether it's uh, necessary beyond the, the sort of four corners of your office. And it's not uh, to state uh, well-known uh, trope. It's not that physicians uh, and healthcare practitioners uh, ever mean to do patient harm. That's not the case. But um, they are not rewarded for time spent with the patient beyond uh, provision of a certain set of services embodied in a code. And they are not rewarded for uh, time spent managing a patient outside the office or for hiring uh, a care manager who will take care of getting patient connected to social services or following a patient home from a hospital. Um, all of that stuff takes time and energy uh, and, uh, and resources for a physician practice. And unless you have a way to, uh, to pay for that, then there's no way that they can sustainably uh, provide that type of care for their patients. And so uh, ACOs are one of a long line of uh, pilot programs that uh, have gone into testing at the Medicare agency over the years. Um, back when I uh, started in Washington in the mid-2000s, uh, a very large chronic care management program was happening at CMS, and this was like, I don't know, an eight-year program that, that paid, essentially paid for telephonic care management, uh, and it took uh, it, it paid a small fee for participating providers, and to the surprise of almost nobody, uh, this sort of telephonic disease management model did not move the needle on costs and had very limited impact on quality. So uh, the CBO did a, a meta-review of, uh, of Medicare pilots uh, a number of years ago. The Congressional Budget Office did a meta-review uh, analysis of these demonstration programs and found that basically none of them have worked historically. And the, the issues with those demonstration programs were uh, front and center when uh, CMS and, uh, and Congress developed the Medicare Shared Savings Program uh, and the, very, the varieties of ACO programs that came out of the Affordable Care Act. Uh, and so Congress at the time invested CMS a lot of flexibility to uh, update the program over the years, to, uh, to change the terms of the financial model, to provide a lot of flexibility for providers to manage care as they see fit rather than according to extremely strict requirements around uh, what, the, what the care management program has to look like, for example. Uh, and this, the, the, the combination of the statutory Medicare Shared Savings Program and the ability of the Innovation Center at, uh, that was also created by the Affordable Care Act to create very variants of ACO programs 
has led to a very rapid cycling of improvements in the program uh, that has been mostly very good for uh, for providers and patients who are relying on this program uh, to build on into the future. And so we probably, depending on how you count, we've had four or five generations of the, the pure Medicare shared savings program. Uh, if when you count the, the various tracks that have been on offer in the several cycles of rulemaking, uh, as well as the uh, uh, several large uh, experiments coming out of the Innovation Center, such as the Next Generation ACO program mm-hmm. and its predecessor, the Pioneer ACO program, uh, as well as a uh, program for ESRD ACOs. So, uh, sorry for uh, thank you for indulging me on going way back here. But the uh, you know the the context for that is important, which is that I think that the the tone and the approach that CMS takes throughout the rule um, is uh, seems to take a, an approach of ACOs and healthcare practitioners who are participating in ACOs are doing CMS a favor by participating in the program. And I think that that's probably the wrong way to look at it. Um, this, is a, this is a program that is managing uh, care uh, of over $100 billion a year, uh, providing care for more than 10 million Medicare patients, and really twice that number when you count non-attributed patients. Mm-hmm. Um, who are also receiving care from those uh, from those practitioners, and so uh, at, at the highest level, I think that um, it's it's really important that CMS has laid out a program that's uh, a proposed rule that uh, provides some stability beyond what they were saying in the spring when there was concern that they might not uh, that they might find a way to get rid of the program. Yeah. Um, but I think that they've still sort of landed in the in between option where they are um, they are trying to uh, put risk so front and center that they are going to potentially dissuade safety net providers, rural providers, from even considering joining the program. And I think that that's unfortunate because, as you referred to uh, in the really comprehensive letter that uh, uh, Professor McWilliams sent in and other research that he cites, uh, the program, even in the non-risk-bearing track, has been very successful in demonstrating uh, savings to Medicare and quality improvements for Medicare patients. Okay, thank you. Uh, right, in, in some, a long run up to where we are. Uh, presently, amongst the others, of course, was the PGP uh, predecessor demonstration. Let me keep this open-ended and ask you, in context of the proposed, what areas uh, of opportunity uh, do you think there are, again, in context of what's proposed to improve the program, specifically, obviously, both results, but, of course, results are dependent on uh, larger or continually large enthusiastic participation. What's the, uh, uh, what are the major... Yeah, yeah, where do you see opportunities are for improving the program? Yeah. So I I think that the the changes that they've considered uh, on on some of the payment rules in the program are good. Um, I think it's appropriate that they allow for some increases in risk scores. Um, Mm -hmm. I think that uh, they should probably um, continue to move the program towards how risk scores are handled in Medicare Advantage, although they probably will never want to go that far. Um, I think that, uh, the, as I mentioned before, the incentive allowance for primary care payments uh, for using in-network primary care services is very welcome, um, and I think it makes sense to, uh, to limit that to risk-bearing tracks. Uh, same thing for telehealth, allowing providers to more easily access uh, payment for providing services remotely uh, while a patient is in his or her home. Uh, it makes a lot of sense. So um, there, there's a lot in the rule that I think uh, will be attractive to ACOs that are comfortable taking risk. 
uh, where I'm concerned, and uh, Caravan, I didn't mention earlier, uh, we we provided support for many of the uh, the uh, advanced investment model ACOs, um, which are uh, heavily rural ACOs, and uh, a number uh, most hospitals and health systems and providers in rural areas uh, are so resource strapped that they just cannot contemplate taking risk and it's a it's a complete non-starter with their them and their boards and so uh, I'm concerned that if CMS doesn't find uh, another solution for rural and safety net providers that there will be a large exodus of those providers from the program okay thank you the um, the beneficiary incentive program of course this is the um, cash equivalent of twenty dollars for all qualifying medical services is actually something out of the February bipartisan uh, budget act you mentioned CMS moving on risk adjustment for the continuously enrolled, the waivers, telehealth, and SNF for at-risk. Um, but there is this uh, rub, and that is under the proposed, instead of six upside years uh, for the quote-unquote low revenue, which would be likely, if not certainly the rural uh, smaller ACOs, they would get no more than uh, two years under this new basic track of upside only. Um, you did mention at the top, you did say in theory you thought that we should move along this now so-called formally uh, termed glide path towards risk, uh, moving away for, of course, away from rather fee-for-service. But how do we thread the needle? What's the compromise or the middle ground between uh, the six current years and the two years and for whom? Uh, and I suppose that suggests your view, what's your view on the low high revenue Idea, which of course is is an effort to try to recognize uh, who's more risk tolerant and who's not. Right. Yeah, I also should have mentioned the uh, the change in the the proposed change to reduce the sharing rates for the first right. few yes. years. Really, yeah. the first four years of the program. If you if you take the slowest track from fifty uh, percent in track one to twenty five percent and going up um, in the basic most of the basic tracks. Um, I think that is a it's a pretty significant problem uh, because, as uh, it's been pretty well described by uh, Professor McWilliams and others, there uh, there are really limited incentives to reduce spending in the program. Fifty uh, percent uh, sharing rates in four ACOs right now, uh, again on about half of your Medicare patients, um, means that it's pretty challenging to justify. Uh, either investments to reduce spending or even just to tolerate reducing spending when you aren't guaranteed that that will be enough to generate shared savings payments later. Um, So that's going to be a big dissuader of anyone who can't jump to the uh, basic level E, which is where you get back to the the 50% sharing rate, which is a a recreation of the existing Track 1 Plus model. Um, But that that requires for a health system to take on 4% total cost of care risk uh, at the maximum worst-case scenario, or if you're a physician group, uh, 8% of your revenues, um, which is uh, pretty significant. Again, if you are a safety net or rural healthcare provider, um, my experience uh, in having enough conversations, conversations with a number of healthcare providers, um, many hospitals and uh, physician groups in suburban and urban areas are ready uh, to take on track one plus levels of risk. And you've seen that 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 track has had very rapid growth over the last couple of years. Um, But that has not been in in rural areas, for instance. And so I think it's a 
many peop- many providers are are ready to do that, but not uh, not not all. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, I, I think that the you know the the opportunity here, uh, the, the way to thread the needle, I think that they uh, I think that they should really look hard at uh, at re- resetting the sharing rates because the incentives are too too small right now in the program everywhere you look. Um, and I think that they need to find a solution for under-resourced providers uh, to to stay in uh, essentially non-risk-bearing tracks for for a, a certain time. Um, the the other piece that you mentioned, the enhanced uh, track uh, in the requirement for what they call high-revenue ACOs to go into uh, enhanced after one five-year cycle. Um, you know, I think it, there, there's a pretty big gap between the basic, uh, the highest risk track of the basic ACO mm-hmm. and the, the enhanced ACO uh, track, which is the maximum, uh, most easily illustrated with the maximum worst case scenario in the basic track is you lose 4% of total cost of care, which think of it as roughly equivalent to $400 per patient per year um, versus the enhanced worst case scenario is 15% of total cost of care or Fifteen hundred dollars per patient per year. Um, that's a pretty uh, that's a pretty disastrous level of risk to take on, unless you're really confident about uh, the work that you're doing. Most health systems are going to have to look for uh, a partner to share in that risk, uh, like Caravan Health or other organizations that, that provide support services to ACOs, or to find a, a reinsurance solution. Mm-hmm. Um, the high revenue distinction, CMS makes a, a big point of trying to encourage uh, physician-led ACOs and, and uh, tries to single out hospital-affiliated ACOs, um, and, and in doing so, uh, defines high revenue ACOs and, and attempts to capture hospital-affiliated ACOs in that and, and provides the physician-led ACOs or the low revenue ACOs the ability to stay in the basic track for 10 years instead of five years. Right, right. Um, I think it's a real, it's sort of an odd uh, reward or incentive they've chosen for that group. Um, and it's obviously quite far off in the future before that, that will have any impact. Uh, 2025 at this point, 2024, 2025 for, for many systems. So um, I think that, I, I think that the, the overall skepticism of, CMS towards hospital-affiliated ACOs is justified in the sense that, on average, the uh, those ACOs have not uh, done as well as other ACOs have. But the there are a number of hospital-affiliated ACOs that have done well. Our partners have uh, the AIM program ACOs, which include a number of hospital-affiliated affiliated ACOs, did as well as the Track Three program, which uh, CMS likes to tout as proving the virtue of two-sided right. uh, ACOs. So I, I think that CMS uh, needs to be wary of overly preferring physician-led ACOs uh, and instead let the uh, incentives of the program work themselves out uh, as the market sees fit. Okay, thank you. Um, lots, of, lots of directions to go with this. Let me just throw in this other variable. So I'll, of course... In all these proposed rules, CMS is required to uh, calculate an impact. Uh, so all these proposed rules are concluded with an impact statement. Here they guesstimate over the 10-year budget window savings, an average savings guesstimate of uh, $2.24 billion over the 10-year period. That's quite modest. 
And I was a little surprised uh, it was so limited because they certainly uh, improved their uh, savings by reducing, per your last point, the earned shared savings 50% to 25% and no better than 40% in level D. You don't get back to 50 until the fifth level E year under basic. Um, so notwithstanding that, the score is quite low. What's, what's your sense of, of what should be the goal for savings, uh, assuming um, uh, the program still maintains or that ACO providers persist in participating to the extent they have to date? I think that the, the fallacy here is that there is savings being generated by the program rules changes when uh, the, the majority of that savings is, is essentially arising from uh, what you can think of as a tax of increasing the Medicare share of the savings of any ACOs who happen to stay in the program uh, or reducing uh, shared savings that are paid out uh, for ACOs uh, that are earning 25% instead of 50%. Um, I, I do think that uh, there is uh, an issue with sort of random payouts in the program mm-hmm. where ACOs that are on the smaller side uh, and, and in the track one model uh, are can benefit from uh, essentially uh, overly generous uh, minimum savings rates, and if uh, because there is a high degree of variability in healthcare spending, right. if you are a ten thousand life ACO, it's quite possible that one year your benchmark perform that you're going to beat your benchmark by five percent and receive a check, even if you don't do anything. Uh, and so that is a problem, and uh, I think that the way to solve that is is probably by increasing the uh, increasing the minimum savings rate for. ACOs that are in that position rather than um, reducing the sharing rate because you're still going to be writing a check for uh, for an ACO in that position. It would be just a smaller check. Um, and then for ACOs that uh, that go into a risk-bearing model, I think that you you should allow them to select their, their risk orders as, right. as they've proposed. You know, this but last... You do have... No, go ahead. Uh, you do... Uh, your last point here references your May essay in health affairs and your solution of scaling. This is the number problem, per your point, with a small number of bennies in any one year and year over year. Performance can actually be statistically random. Um, CMS does not address that at all in this proposed rule. You're suggesting here that one way to get at it is for the low enrollees to have a required larger MSR or MLR. Uh, that would at least provide more statistical certainty that there is genuine uh, changes in spending. Um, will you have? Will you make comment about uh, this uh, end problem or your scaling solution? Uh, we will, and uh, and we've talked with CMS and anyone who will listen about it. Um, we also, uh, you know, a number of convening organizations uh, or uh, groups like ours are able to come uh, to work with different. Uh, and multiple healthcare providers without uh, combining them, uh, without purchasing them or requiring them to be part of a regional mega system and activating all of the antitrust concerns that come with that. Uh, and so there are solutions for achieving scale under the prior and proposed rules of the program. Uh, and that's one of the things that we work with our clients on so that you can see the connection between the work that you put in place in uh, implementing these uh, preventive care programs and care management programs and the results that you achieve in the shared savings program. Mm-hmm. 
Interesting, interesting. Uh, we're already, Tim, sorry to say, at almost our, our time limit. Uh, let me just, um, maybe just as a, as a last question, what, what's your expectation relative to how much of this proposed goes final? I mean, how much dialing do you think uh, CMS will do in, in moving from proposed to final? The, the word on the street seems to be that um, it will not be that much. Yeah, it's hard to say. Um, you, I, I like to warn my friends um, at, uh, at Caravan and elsewhere against uh, speculating too much because if you recall in, uh, just by way of one example out of hundreds, uh, in May and early June, uh, everybody said based uh, every other day that the MSSP rule was coming out imminently right. <laughs> uh, that day, many cases. And, of course, it didn't come out until August. Uh, and I would apply a similar rule of caution here. Uh, they, they've been pretty clear about what the direction they want to see in the program. Uh, they've, been, they've laid out a pretty concise framework for how they want to restructure it. Uh, but they've also said that they want to get comments on the number of dimensions that could take it, in a, could take the program in, in a lot of different ways. So um, I certainly hope that they will be looking at uh, protecting the overall business model here. Um, and you meant uh, to your earlier point about what what should be our sharing expect, savings expectations. You really can't divorce this from the overall context of the Medicare. Uh, payment systems and from the MIPS program in particular. Right. Uh, if if you do not have strong incentives to join this program, then there is no purpose of joining this program from the per, uh, perspective of a healthcare provider. And so, uh, per, incentives to join, stay in, and to work hard to reduce total costs uh, are the the single most important thing that CMS can focus on here, uh, and that is a combination of both what happens in this program, but also what happens in uh, the MIPS program and uh, the, the choice between those two. Uh, and so they, they really need to look at this comprehensively as to where they want Medicare payment systems to evolve over time. Um, so I hope that they, that they uh, fix the sharing rates and fix the incentive problems um, I hope that they give some consideration to how rural providers will stay in the program, but um, it's really hard to predict what's going to happen. Right. Excellent point, though, that there is an interaction and relatedness between the Medicare Insurance Savings Program and the MACRA uh, uh, MIPS program, and that CMS should be encouraged to think more synthetically about the interaction, and that certainly would be helpful, though, as you know, history tells us that CMS maintains this insistence that they look at things in a siloed manner. So with that, Tim, um, we're at our time. So I want to say thank you for this overview and discussion of the proposed rule, and we'll see what happens uh, next year uh, when likely early uh, 19 this will go final. So thank you again. Thank you, David. You have just heard another edition of the Healthcare Policy Podcast hosted by David Intricasso. To comment on this program or others, to see information about upcoming interviews, to suggest a program topic, or to hear an archive program, please visit our website, thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Thank you for listening, and please listen again soon.